بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما آمين يا رب العالمين الحمد لله this is lesson 7 in module 5 and we're kind of wrapping things up we have I would say after tonight's class we probably have two more and then we'll be done with salat and then we'll do a test inshallah as always and then we'll move on so so far in the module of salat we have learned the conditions for the obligation of prayer shurutul wujub then we learn the sabab or the cause for the obligation of prayer which is the entrance of the time dukhulul waqt then we learn the conditions for the validity of prayer this is what we call shurutul siha and then we learn the pillars the obligations and the sunnas of prayer and we spoke about the difference between each of these how the conditions are things external to the salat itself and the pillars are within the salat itself and we explained that pillars and obligations are very similar it's just there's an epistemological difference between the two in terms of the strength of the evidence in favor of one over the other we talked about the sunnas of prayer and last week we also talked about some of the reasons for the differences in prayer Now we could have gone into a lot of detail about that and I actually find that very enjoyable because in this environment in North America when you see lots of different ways people pray it's important to recognize where those differences come from and I would say that 99% of those variations are completely valid there are a couple of things you may see here and there that aren't really valid but by and by and large all of the variations that we see have a basis within the views of the great imams each view supported by narrations particular understandings of hadith uh, opinions of various sahaba and so on this means that Although we are learning the fiqh of salat in this program according to the legal school of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala we recognize those differences and we're not objecting to any of those differences if we see them so tonight inshallah we're going to go in the same order that we find within the works of the ahnaf and that is discussing the adab of the prayer the etiquettes followed by the mufsidat or those things that invalidate the prayer then the things that are makruh disliked in the prayer and then those things that are permissible and you can do them if you want to in the prayer and lastly tonight we look at very briefly those circumstances when a person can break their prayer they can just interrupt it on the spot and exit the prayer what are those circumstances and how do you do it 
So looking at the adab, now we know this word adab is one of our Islamic vocabulary words. Adab is sometimes translated as etiquette or manners or propriety. We could also look at it as the better way of doing something, the proper way of doing something. Now, the, the adab of salat, the fuqaha say, that leaving them, omitting them, does not entail any blame. If you leave any of these things, you're not guilty of any sin, not at all. So these are on the same level as mandub. So encouraged, recommended, mustahab, and so on. So among these things, the adab of prayer, is to look at one's place of prostration when standing, the top of one's feet while bowing, the tip of one's nose while prostrating, the lap while sitting, and each shoulder when making the closing salams. So here the fuqaha are telling us that when you're in salat, one of the adab is to know where your eyes should go. Now, in all of the, in the four madahib, three of them recommend that when you're standing, your eyes are looking towards your place of sajda. That's within the three schools. In the school of Imam Malik, rahimahullah, it's actually recommended to look straight towards the qibla. So, in the, in the Maliki madhab, the person would utter the takbir, and they're actually looking straight ahead like this. And the proof in the Maliki school for that is very simple. Allah Ta'ala says, direct your faces towards the Qibla. So that's literally directing the face towards the Qibla. Now the other three madahib say that you should look towards the place of prostration. Uh, that is more conducive to concentration and focus. And it's less likely you'll get distracted. Now what's universally disliked is to look around in the Salat. If a person is looking straight ahead, that's valid. If they're looking at the place of prostration, that's good. If they're looking anywhere else besides those two places, it is blameworthy, it's disliked. In fact, it is a kind of stealing from the prayer, according to one hadith, where the person is darting their eyes left and right. You know, uh, This is blameworthy. And it's even more blameworthy if the person is looking up. So we look in these general directions in Salat. So if you are in Ruku'ah, you're not looking where your head is going to go. You're actually looking at the area of your feet. So your head's basically, your eyes are basically following your body. Likewise, the tip of one's nose when in sajda. Now, this is on the ground, you can't see it. But the idea is you're not looking this way or that way. You're basically looking this way, kind of toward the ground. And then when you're sitting, you're looking in this area, and when you're turning for salams, you're glancing at the shoulder. You're not going and looking out to the horizon on the right or the left. That's number one. Number two is to try one's best to refrain from coughing and to keep one's mouth closed when yawning. Uh, now this is the kind of coughing that one uh, doesn't purposely create, if you want to use that word. They don't purposely make themselves cough. We're talking about a cough that is coming that you have to fight. 
if you feel a cough coming on, it's better to try to suppress that in the moment if you can. And if you're yawning, it is better to suppress that yawn by closing your mouth. Imam Ibn Abidin, one of the great Hanafi scholars, he mentions in his Hashiyah that he received from many of his mashayikh one of the tried and true ways of keeping yourself from yawning. He says that whenever you feel the urge to yawn and your mouth is starting to open, just remind yourself that the Anbiya never yawned. Just remember that in the moment and you find that your mouth will likely close and the urge goes away. So it's recommended, it's better to try to refrain from yawning and coughing if you can. Now they make a distinction between coughing that is not purposeful, that just happens, and the purposeful coughing. Purposeful coughing would be a person who, they don't have any irritation in their throat or chest. They just make the coughing sound on purpose, like me, <coughs> like this. That can invalidate the prayer. Why? Because you are uttering sounds, words, or two letters or more outside of the context of Salat. And we'll get to that in the Mufsidat. You have to be careful. Um, the next thing, uh, just some points on this, uh, on the issue of looking. We mentioned that it's blameworthy to look around when in prayer and it's better to look at where your place of sajda is or straight ahead. What about closing your eyes? A lot of people ask about that. They say, well, you know, I have a hard time focusing in prayer. Is it okay if I close my eyes? It is okay if you're so distracted by your environment that that's the only way you're going to have focus. In that circumstance, you can do it. However, it's always preferred to have your eyes open and to look at the place of sajda or straight ahead. Closing the eyes is less preferable, but it is okay to do if you are having a difficult time focusing. Um, coughing for no reason, as we said, can invalidate the prayer. And if you cannot control the yawning, it is valid and permissible for you to cover the mouth with your hand or with your sleeve. And what I've learned from my teachers is a difference between the right hand and the left hand. That if you cover with the right hand, that's fine. And you can cover with the palm of your hand. But if you find the urge to cover the yawn and you have only your left hand, it's better that you avoid the surface of the palm and use the back of the hand. Because this is the hand that one uses for uh, things related to filth and cleaning oneself. So use the back of the hand. So that's pretty much it for the adab. Um, we come now to a very significant section. And that is the section known as the mufsidat. Those things that invalidate the prayer. There are a lot of people who do things in the prayer that actually invalidate their prayer and they don't even know it. So on the surface they think I have prayed this prayer or that prayer, but they've been doing things that actually cancel out the salat, that make it invalid, whereby they need to start over again with a, a fresh takbir. So among these things is to utter a word of human speech, quote-unquote. And this is opposed to the words one may utter in prayer. So words of human speech, they define that as things that you would conceivably say to a human being. 
Now the Hanafis are very strict on this, a lot stricter than the others, because in the other schools you could make du'a for worldly things if you wanted to. You could say, Oh Allah, I need, the I need this new car. If you wanted to, you could. That would be problematic in the Hanafi school. They say the words should be the kind of words that you would only address to the Creator and not conceivably another human being. So if you're speaking words of human speech out of forgetfulness even, this can invalidate the prayer. And they talk about what that may mean. It could be sounds, it could be statements, uh, things unrelated to the du'as in the tasbihat and the tahmid that one would make in the salat. More common than that would be number two among the mufsidat. And that is al-amlul kathir, right? Excessive movement. This is a huge problem. So first we have to define what is excessive movement. It is very subjective. So we have a somewhat subjective definition and we also have an objective guideline for determining what's excessive from what's not. So the excessive movement is defined by the fuqaha as that due to which an onlooker from afar who didn't know from the onset that the person was praying would be fairly certain that its doer was not praying. So imagine you are walking down a trail and you see a person on the hill 50 yards ahead and you, you don't know if they're praying or not. Like you don't know ahead of time that they're engaged in salat. You just walk up on them on this trail. And they're moving in such a way that you're certain that they're not actually praying. Well, that kind of movement would be excessive. On the other hand, if they're standing in the prayer posture and there's a couple of minor movements, on the surface, it appears they're praying. That's different. So, it, that's a very subjective way of looking at it. But it's, and it's based on what others might observe from the person and how they would determine it. Objectively speaking, we say that excessive movement for the person in Salat is estimated as three continuous movements such that if one walks three continuous steps, for example, the prayer would be invalid. So three continuous movements as opposed to three or more discontinuous movements. Give you an example. Obviously when you enter the salat, you utter the takbir. Allahu Akbar. So there is movement here. When you're making ruku', there's movement. When you rise, there's movement. But in between those postures, if a person is moving a limb like the arm, scratching their chin like I am right now, that's one movement. If they then scratch their head, this is two. If they check their watch to see what time it is, that's three. These are all occurring in a, in a continuous manner, one after the other. That would be different from a person uttering the takbir and in the first rak'ah they scratch their chin. After ruku' they come back and they adjust their kufi or scratch their head. And then coming up from sajda they may look at their watch like that. Those are separated by postures. It's not continuous. 
We're talking about one, two, three in a continuous way. This is excessive such that if a person was looking at you from a distance, they would think, well, you're not even praying. It's like a person walking three steps. Now, why not four? You know, why not two? Right? The ulama, the fuqaha, they have to determine the minimum for what is seen as excessive. So there is no maximum, but the minimum will be three. Well, that is the maximum, I mean the minimum. They even say that the prayer would be invalid even if it was not voluntary. So this is a scenario where you're in salat and someone pushes you. If you take three steps to keep yourself from falling, that's excessive movement, right? So when does this come up the most? It comes up a lot with children. And not to say it's solely the fault on the children, it's also with adults too, right? You get people who just get very fidgety. There's this, then there's this, there's this, 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 and this. That's excessive movement. Likewise, we mentioned last week the issue of straightening the rows. That there's a certain protocol for that. If a person is overly focusing on straightening the rows while in salat, getting their foot aligned with this one, and then moving this one, this person moves away, so then they move their foot more. You've all seen that. That's excessive movement. This is al-amr kathir, and it's continuous. It's very problematic. Now, one exception is mentioned by the fuqaha. The movement you take in salat, li-islah salat to fix the prayer. So if you move while in prayer, but the purpose of the movement is to address something, or to fix the prayer, that is not excessive and that's fine. What might that look like? Well, let's say it's a windy day and you're afraid that the wind's going to blow so strongly that it might uncover your aura. So you tighten your belt or you put your sleeve or your, your, your coat a certain way to keep it from moving or you adjust the kufi to keep it from falling off. Or you, you know, you do these things to prevent anything from happening. Or even if you were to move the rocks, if you're praying outside for the first sajda, not the others, that kind of movement, it's all in the, for the purpose of having more presence in the salat or keeping your aura covered in salat or removing some impediment to concentration in salat. So those things are for uh, rectifying the prayer itself. They're not the same thing as a person looking at their watch or just fiddling or cracking their knuckles or doing all this other stuff. So you have to be careful, but understand that some movement is inevitable, such as shifting your feet or whatever. Some is preventable. So that invalidates the prayer if it's excessive. Uh, other things that invalidate it, very obviously, is eating or drinking. And if you remember, when we covered the fiqh of fasting, we said that in the Hanafi school, if you have, after you start your fast, a piece of food stuck in your teeth, what is the maximum size allowed that if you swallow it, your fasting is still valid? Does anyone remember that? The chickpea. Who can forget the chickpea? Well, the chickpea is back. And this time, they mention the same word chickpea. They say, 
that if there's leftover food in the mouth, the prayer is only invalid if what you swallow is the size of a chickpea or larger. So if it's less than a chickpea and it's between the teeth or something and the person swallows it in prayer, that doesn't invalidate the prayer. Chickpea or larger, it's invalid. Beyond that, I can't imagine anyone going with a glass of water or a piece of cake or something and eating it while praying. Obviously to do that would invalidate the prayer. Uh, likewise to say salams to someone or to shake their hand, right? You can imagine a person in salat and as they're praying someone walks by and they reach out to shake their hand. You might hear this and think, who would do that? You'd be surprised. I have seen, I have seen things. <laughs> I saw one person praying, it was Ramadan and some children were running around making noise. This person was in Salat and as the children were running around they looked at them and said stop that running around and they go back to their prayer. Prayer is invalid, right? It is what it is. So to say salams in general or, or to speak that would invalidate. Uh, number five, to turn the torso away from the Qibla. So let's say you're facing the Qibla and you turn your head, does that invalidate the prayer? No. If you turn your head either right or left, your prayer is not invalid. Only if you turn your torso away from the Qibla, right, 45 degree angle. And you see this in the hadith of Sayyidina Anas radiallahu anhu, in that beautiful hadith when he describes the final moment when Rasulullah gazed at the Sahaba before his passing. They were in Salat praying behind Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu and they said that when he opened the curtain they could barely keep themselves uh, under control. They were so excited they almost broke the prayer. And he said that they all turned their heads to look at him. So they know. So this is a very beautiful hadith, but one of the relevant points, the shahid here is, they turn their head, not the whole body or the chest. Uh, number six, to make dua using words that resemble normal human speech. Uh, we've mentioned that a couple of times now. Uh, this is a very strict view in the Hanafi school. And they say that your du'as should be on matters of deen and akhirah and so on. And there's a few more here. Um, one is for the awrah to be uncovered, but that's not an absolute. They say for the awrah to be uncovered for the length of time it takes to perform a pillar. So let's say the awrah is uncovered what time are we looking at? They say three tasbihat. Subhanallah. They say normal voice too, not sped through. Subhanallah, subhanallah, subhanallah. That's the duration. If the awra is uncovered for that long, that would invalidate the prayer. Now there's some details here. How much and to what extent. They say that if one-fourth of a limb, now the, the man's awra is different from the female, but let's say in the female awrah in salat, everything but the face and the hands and the feet, if one-fourth of a limb, that is awrah, 
or more becomes exposed for less than this time, it's excused because things happen. If it's less than a fourth of a limb that gets exposed for any duration of time, it's excused. So let's say this is a limb, right? Right, the hand, this, this is a limb. One fourth would be what, that much? Give or take. If that much or less is exposed for longer than three tasbihat, it's fine. It's not invalidating the prayer. But if you're talking more than a fourth, a fourth or more, going back like that, three tasbihat or more, invalid. So if that actually happens and the person has control over, what, over their garments, they can address the issue. And lastly, if someone purposely exposes a limb from the aura during prayer, the prayer is invalid no matter how short a duration or how little. So male or female, if a person purposely exposes their aura while in salat, doesn't matter how long it was exposed, they did it with intention, that invalidates the prayer. So the first two scenarios are when there's no intention involved, it just happens. So it's a matter of how much and for how long, that's your question. So uh, this is important because oft you often find people coming to, especially to masjid events and their awrah is not covered properly. And they're going to salat and their awrah is not covered properly. The salat is batila. It's, it's invalid. And we want to encourage them to pray, but to pray properly, right? And obviously on the issue of hijab, we recognize that not everyone is at the same place. We recognize that some people are, they struggle with that. It's something we recognize. But even for our sisters who struggle with the hijab 24-7 or whenever they go outside, even for those sisters who are struggling, you need to make sure that you have a prayer outfit with you or something that's covering your aura in salat at least, right? Just because you're struggling with the hijab and it's something you're working towards doesn't mean that you can pray in that state, right? You have to make sure that the aura is covered in salat. It's, it's, it's important to recognize this. Okay, um, moving on. To carry on one's body or clothing an inexcusable amount of filth. That should be edited. An inexcusable amount of filth. We covered that in the previous module, didn't we? We covered that in Tahara. If, the, if there's anything on the body or the clothing that is uh, najis, that's impure, to carry that on, would, if it's inexcusable, you know, beyond that, excusable amount, the prayer would be invalid. Uh, likewise, for the follower to precede the imam by a pillar. So if, if the, the muqtadi, the one praying behind the imam, is entering the prayer before the imam with their takbir, doesn't count. They'd have to start over again. Uh, if they are behind the imam and they beat the imam to a pillar, so let's say they are in ruku'ah, the muqtadi is in ruku'ah as the imam is moving into ruku'ah. They have preceded the imam in a pillar. The prayer is invalid. 
they have to start over again. And it's also advisable for the imams, right? This is good for imams as well as fathers and anyone who leads prayer. When you're leading people in prayer, it's useful to make sure you time your takbirat to prevent this from happening. And it can be done. In the Maliki school, for example, when you get up from the second rakah, from the tashahud, you actually are encouraged to utter the takbir after you have stood up. Because often what happens is as people are getting up, Allahu Akbar, someone stands up quicker than the imam. So you want to time it so that your takbir is as you're moving and nearing the completion of that transition. So that by the time you are done, they can then move. They're not going to beat you to it. Anyhow. Um, and lastly, of those things that invalidate the prayer, to miss a pillar of the prayer and not make it up before the end of the prayer. And we'll touch on that in some detail when we talk about the prostration of forgetfulness and addressing things that people drop or forget or neglect and so on. Um, and that's it for the mufsidat. So we talked about adab, things that are recommended, mufsidat, things that invalidate, and now we come to the makruhat, those things that are disliked. And the basis for this is the offensiveness of deliberately omitting any obligation of the prayer or omitting any sunnah act. So every makruh thing we're seeing in this list entails leaving something that's either wajib or sunnah. But the rulings differ, remember, because we're talking about the school of Imam Abu Hanifa and in their legal methodology, in their usul, there's two types of makruh things. Who remembers the difference? You have makruh tahrimi and makruh tanzihi. What's the difference between the two? What is makruh tahrimi? It is haram. Yeah, it's haram. And according to the term used by the others, it will be haram. It's the equivalent of haram with the others. Makru tanzihi is what the others would call makru. So the Hanafi school has a different uh, way of categorizing these things based on the strength of evidence. What is qat'i and thubut and dilala and so on. So prohibitively dislike is makru tahrimi. It's sinful to do that. Makru tanzihi is mildly disliked it's not a sin to do that or to omit that thing but it is disliked and if you continue with something that is makru tanzihi if you keep doing it over and over and over again it become if it becomes a continual habit it is possible for the makru tanzihi to become sinful as well through doing it perpetually or constantly so we have to be mindful of that the things the ulama mention in this category uh, al-abath right to fiddle around with one's garment or body without excessive movement so we're recognizing here a distinction between large movements that are excessive moving this moving that moving here all of this type of stuff and the micro movements that are not excessive movements but they're fiddling with the body you know people they want to you know they want to you know, massage, do the self-massage of the shoulders or do, do some joint mobility drills. They want to pop their knuckles. They want to stretch out their joints. They want to 
do all these little tiny things, this is abath and it's makruh. Likewise, to wipe away pebbles on the ground, except once for sajda, when you're in going to sajda. If you're outside and you're going to make sajda and you wipe away any pebbles that are in the way, that are going to, your, your head would land on, you can do that the first time. But to keep going back and you know, moving this and moving that, this is disliked. Uh, number three, to crack one's knuckles. Now, interestingly, in the Hanafi school, this is makruh taharimi. It's prohibitively, prohibitively disliked in the prayer. This is when the person is doing it on purpose. It is not when it happens involuntarily, because there are a lot of people who, for whom, you know, they move around in the prayer, getting up, getting down. You know, it's especially when you get to your 40s and 50s. It's like Rice Krispies, you know, A snap, crackle, pop. That is not makru because that's an involuntary action it just happens uh, likewise to turn one's neck now this is seen as prohibitively disliked in the Hanafi school to turn one's neck it's kind of like turning around like this to do that and to roll up one's sleeves is makru in the Hanafi school this is why uh, and the other madayab don't have this necessarily but to roll up one's sleeves is disliked one should roll them down uh, and number seven for men to pray only in a lower garment that covers the aura while having the ability to cover the whole body so let's say a person they're at home they have a closet full of clothes but they decide you know what it's hot today i'm just going to pray in a lungi in the izar and it's going to be above my eight my navel it'll cover my aura that's a single garment but they have other clothes. That's makru. And this is prohibitively disliked. They need to cover uh, the rest of their body, uh, the other part of their, the, the upper body. Uh, other things disliked, gathering one's garments close to the body before going into sajda. I know you've all seen this. Maybe you've done it too. You're outside, you're at the park, maybe there's a little bit of dew in the ground or it's a little dusty. And as you're going into sajda, you're kind of gathering your clothes pulling this up and that up so that uh, less of your clothes make contact with the ground this is makru and it's makru tahrimi it's prohibitively disliked and the reason why the ulama say is because it is min alamat al-kibr it's a, a sign of arrogance that you're too proud to let your garments get a little bit of dust on them so one should not go out of their way to gather up all their garments so they don't get a, uh, any dust or whatever on them. Uh, number nine, to close one's eyes. This is mildly disliked unless there's a legitimate reason, such as helping one to focus, as we mentioned earlier. To yawn, uh, to stretch out one's arms, exposing the chest. You can imagine the kind of shirts that would fasten but come undone if you open them like this to do that would be mildly disliked to cover one's mouth and nose except when yawning um, <laughs> some people would ask how does this apply to COVID masks and I haven't heard that addressed except from one possible angle if a person deems it a need due to a medical reason that would allow for it 
if you deem that if you deem that a necessity for yourself as something important and there's a medical need that would allow it this would be another scenario where a person's just covering it uh, because of the weather perhaps um, or just to cover it except when yawning you can you can cover that the nose and the mouth with your hand when yawning to prostrate with the forehead uncovered so this is mildly disliked unless there's an excuse such as the ground being very hot so I think there's a typo here because this should be uh, if the ground is very hot that would be an excuse for covering your forehead so the word un the prefix should be removed so this is the case where a person's forehead they're wearing a garment or something that's covering it like this if they have a garment they put on the ground or it's wrapped and it's covered because of the heat that will be fine uh, prostrating on a picture would be makru to pray while having the urge or to pray uh, in a road a lavatory or a graveyard to pray while having the urge to urinate or defecate uh, interestingly this is makru tahrimi they say that if you have to urinate or defecate and you go into the salat this is actually prohibitively disliked you have to break the salat and go use the bathroom make wudu and go to the prayer um, to pray in work clothes does that mean if you go to work you have to bring a second uh, change of clothes to pray in not necessarily because when the fuqaha mentioned work clothes in this context they usually remember fiqh a lot of our fiqh texts are describing uh, an agricultural society so when they say work clothes they usually mean clothes that are uh, used for work that get very dirty and very worn out uh, so they say those kinds of clothes you should not wear for salat if you have a second change of clothes uh, but they do add in addition that one should uh, not pray in the normal clothes they will wear at home unless they're the same kind of clothes they would wear when meeting distinguished people but we're in an age where you would meet a distinguished person wearing your pajamas that, that's kind of where we are in the, in the society today. So our own societal standard doesn't really apply here. The idea is that if you have good clothes, beautiful clothes, dignified clothes, it's recommended that you wear them. And it's disliked that you pray in the least valued of your clothes. Right? And there's a verse in the Quran that emphasizes this. Allah addresses humanity. Bani Adam Allah says Ya Bani Adam Khudu zinatakum Inda kulli masjidin Take your adornment At every place of prostration Every prayer So you should wear good clothes Does that mean that if you have clothes You wear around the house You can't pray in them Not necessarily If they're dignified clothes That you will walk out of the house with It's fine It's just We don't want to wear clothes That are shabby unless we have no other choice okay and this is mildly disliked you're not doing haram if you pray wearing pajamas but it's a higher it's a higher virtue to go above and beyond that 
Um, things also disliked to pray in a garment on which there's a picture of an animate creature. So this is prohibitively disliked. If a person has a picture of a human being or an animal, cartoon figure or otherwise, to pray in that garment is makru tahrimi. It's prohibitively disliked. Number 19 is an interesting one. And I know all of you from Pakistan will probably have lots of memories about this one. To pray with one's head uncovered unless done out of humility. With a show of hands, how many of you have gone to a masjid back home with your head uncovered and someone came up to you and put something on your head? Is a basket, yeah. And, and depending on where you are, they're plastic or they're made out of straw. Uh, I've only seen this in Pakistan. I haven't seen this anywhere else in the world. And I understand the wisdom of having that. You're working, you don't have a kufi. You walk in, you grab one. But what I find interesting is how people would put it on your head. <laughs> this is, th that was completely new to me. But yes, in the Hanafi school, it's makroo to pray without covering your head unless the intention is or it's done out of humility now we could actually talk about number 19 and spend about a good half an hour just looking at the history of headgear and its cultural connotations its uh, it as a marker of dignity in society and how going bareheaded was traditionally seen as uh, as one of those things that uh, impugns one's manly integrity. But that's not universal. That's not universal because that seems to be much more strongly represented in the Mashriq in the East. If you go to the West, if you go to Andalusia, for example, uh, in those lands, it wasn't always the norm to have the head covered. So it is what it is. You know, if, if a person chooses not to cover their head for whatever reason, in the Hanafi school, they would say this is less preferred. At least wear something in Salat, and if not, then make the niyyah one out of humility. But that's kind of hard to do in this day and age because we don't do that anymore. You have to put yourself in the shoes of these pre-modern people, men I'm talking about, for whom wearing headgear was an absolute given and if you knock someone's turban off it would be an offense that would bring one to blows right if you were to go to someone 200 300 years ago and knock off their turban they would fight you and if someone wanted to humiliate someone else they would take off their turban and, tell, and make them walk the streets bareheaded. So in that kind of context, to remove the turban or the kufi would be something out, out of extreme humility. So they said, if that's the intention, you can pray without your head covered. Anyhow, uh, to pray when food has been served, when one is hungry, such that it would distract one from the prayer. Uh, this is found in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, number 21 to, uh, to pray in the presence of a picture of an animate creature 
We talked about praying in a garment with an animate creature. What about praying in the presence of a picture of an animate creature? Say a photograph or a poster or drawing, whatever. This is severely disliked the most if the picture is in front of one. And that's obvious because you're praying in that direction. If it's not in front of you, the next worst place is if it's above you. Say it's on the wall or something, but above you. Followed by it being on your right or your left. In all of these cases, it is makruh tahrimi. It's prohibitively disliked to have the image in front of you, above you, to your right, to your left in this way. Now, if the picture is behind you, it's mildly disliked. But this is only disliked if the picture is not so small that the details of the limbs would not be plainly visible to a standing person. So, you know, if you have a, let's say there's a picture uh, on a, like a handheld, uh, the size of a, a wallet picture, for instance, it's on the ground and it's so small, you couldn't even make out the limbs from it in a standing posture. It could be in front of you, be a newspaper, piece of a newspaper, right? If it's so small that you can't even make out the size of the limbs, it's just kind of blurry, that's not prohibitively disliked or anything like that. Uh, nor if it's the face is covered or severed. And this is with pictures. Now, yes? Yeah, I'm getting to that right now. Um, this doesn't apply to reflections. Reflections would be a mirror or a window or a body of water. A couple of years ago, <laughs> I, was <laughs> I was praying here in the masjid. It was Isha. And you know when you're in the front row where the window is? There's, uh, it's on the right side and the left side, there's the window. There's two of them. If you're positioned right in front of that window at night, you can see your reflection. So one time, uh, I was praying there. And this one person came to me after Salat and said, uh, this is completely unacceptable. The Salat in front of that window is invalid, is batil. I said, why? He said, because you could, you know, you could see the reflection. And I, I tried to tell him that's not actually true. It's a reflection. It's not the same as a picture. But, you know, like my khutbah today, you know, wasn't hearing it. Uh, if it is a mirror, it's not that you should go out of your way to face a mirror. But if a person is in a room that has a mirror on the wall in the direction they're praying to, that mirror reflection is not considered the same as a photograph or a drawing. It's a reflection. Same thing for, right, same thing for a window that gives you a reflection. Or if you're praying near a body of water that reflects uh, your body that reflects your image. Uh, that's not makru at all. Right. Um, going down this list, uh, to, to pray around that which would distract one. Does that mean it's makru to pray around toddlers? Well, what are you going to do if you have to deal with your kids? But the idea is, if you are in an environment where there's lots of distractions and you have the opportunity to go somewhere else, go somewhere else. Right? Don't pray in a room where there's a TV blaring and there's people just talking all loudly if you can go somewhere else or to a corner where you can pray undisturbed. Right? 
Another thing that's makruh is to pray in the jama'ah standing alone in the row. How many times have you seen that? You walk in, the first row is filled, right? What should the one do if he comes and the first row is filled? He doesn't stand by himself and pray. He pulls someone and they stand next to him and they pray. To pray by yourself like that is makruh. To pray in front of a furnace is makruh. Why? Well, because there is this kind of imitation of the majus who would offer their prayer in front of the fire. So we don't want to do any prayer towards an object that resembles the prayer and worship of the majus, the Zoroastrians. To wipe dirt or sweat off of one's face that does not distract him during the prayer. So let's say you're praying and it's a hot summer day and beads of sweat are dripping down your forehead getting into your eyes and burning your eyes can you move to wipe that away yes because it's disturbing your prayer so islah salat to, to rectify the prayer you can get rid of that but let's say you just don't like being sweaty it's not in your eyes so you decide to take out a cloth and go you know the beauty pat that's makru and it could even be excessive movement if you're not careful um, yeah, and that's basically it. Uh, so you, you, they all share common features. And these things, some of which are makru tahrimi, some are makru tanzihi in the Hanafi school. So we come finally to the last part for tonight, and that is those things which are jaiz, permissible to do in the prayer. We have this and then break the prayer. It is recommended for a person who is praying alone to have a sutra. A sutra is like a barrier. Now in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in Abu Dawood, it mentions him using something like a spear. He would sometimes when praying outside use the spear stuck in the ground as a barrier so that anyone who's walking would not be able to walk in front of them. They could walk on the other side of that sutra. Right? This is an ideal. It's not always possible in, in very crowded situations. But if it's possible and you have some object to do that, it's recommended. Um, generally, it would need to be larger than, say, a set of keys. That may not be enough. But if you don't have a sutra in front of you, whether you have one or you don't have one, if a person is passing in front of you in the area where you would make sajda, you can say subhanallah or you can even gesture toward that person away. So this means you could block, you could say subhanallah, you could put your foot out, I don't know, it seems like you're tripping them up maybe. Uh, you can take some measures to prevent them from walking in front of you. That may look like excessive movement. And you're uttering words, although it's from the words of Salat. This is permissible to do. If the person keeps insisting on do it, doing it, you can you know, even get a little more forceful to stop them. It's your right to stop them from passing in front of you. And the distance there is the distance at which your head would make sajda. Right? It's not, I, I remember when I was a brand new Muslim years ago, uh, 
I, I learned this and I was for about a week I was under the impression that if you're praying no one can pass in front of you even if that person is 20 30 feet ahead so I'm in the masjid and someone's way back there in the in, in the musalla praying and I'm just waiting for them to finish not realizing no this is sufficient distance other things you can do in salat fastening your belt is permissible to do even though it's movement to pray facing a copy of the Quran or a sword you know this is what the fuqaha mentioned because that was a common tool used back then uh, it could be any other tool for that matter uh, or the back of someone who is sitting down so let's say you're at home and you have family and friends over and they're sitting in different circles and you're going to pray and you're praying and there's a person in front of you but you're facing their back that's permissible however it's not permissible to pray with them turned around where you're facing them and they're facing you that would not be allowed you can also pray uh, in the direction towards a candle why not a, why not a furnace but a candle the distinction is that the furnace is they say that the Zoroastrians the Majus they weren't actually praying to a fire as such but it was basically these ashes they kept constantly going by adding more wood so the furnace has that the candle doesn't and the candle is something that you you know you can keep on and you can pray in that general direction uh, or a lamp and so on likewise you can while praying kill a snake or a scorpion if you're afraid of their harm with no more than two strikes so if you go one and you get it you're good you gotta go one two you're fine if you go three strikes or more you need to have better aim and you need to pray over again start over because three movements continuous movements what does it do it invalidates the prayer so if it's two or less you can do that is permissible even with turning away from the Qibla because a snake and a scorpion you know it's easy to read these things and hear them and think well snake scorpion have you ever encountered a real-life snake or scorpion outside of a zoo I haven't encountered a snake I have encountered a scorpion but uh, not in Salat thankfully right when I can imagine if I was praying I probably would have taken three or four movements because <laughs> uh, those things really hurt um, but if you move like this it will be fine uh, and these are permissible things in the prayer now how many times have you seen this in the masjid a person comes to the masjid there's a couple of minutes before the iqama maybe one minute and they go and they make the takbir and they begin praying their sunnas as they're praying their sunnas the iqama is called how many times have you seen this how many times has it happened to you it's quite frequent what do you do well there's two ways of looking at this either you in the salat you you break the prayer and join the jama'ah because the obligatory prayer in jama'ah is superior to the sunnah prayer or you finish the prayer and then join the jama'ah so 
breaking the prayer in the Hanafi school and the Shafi'i school and others the basis is that once you start the prayer you continue it and do not break it because Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Quran يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَأَطِيعُوا الرَّسُولَ وَلَا تُبْطِلُوا أَعْمَالَكُمْ O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the Messenger and do not invalidate your actions. Do not purposely invalidate them. Do not purposely break them without need. Like there's times when there's needs. In that situation, if you don't have to break it, you don't break it. So it is permissible at times to break the prayer and there are times when you have to break the prayer and there are times where it's better that you should not break the prayer but just speed up right so they'll say things like it is permissible to break the prayer if you're being robbed and by robbed here we're, we're thinking of someone going through your belongings while you're in prayer if they're going through your belongings taking your stuff and it has monetary value you could break your prayer to stop them from robbing you and taking your things. You just pray the prayer over when you get a chance. They say it's obligatory to break the prayer if a person hears a call for help from someone in an emergency or if one fears that a blind person will fall into a well or the like. So you shouldn't think once you enter the prayer that you can never break it even if the per as the person is flailing their arms in the water. You break the prayer and you go rescue them, right? Because that's an obligation for the one who's able. And that obligation is mudayyaq. It's a very time-sensitive obligation. If you don't get out there in time, they're going to drown. But the prayer is an obligation that is mawasa'i. The time is expansive. You have time to do it afterwards, right? And likewise, if one is praying a sunnah prayer, going back to our scenario if they're praying the sunnah prayer and they hear the iqama they should speed up slightly but not break the prayer i know people have other views and they say if you're praying just go assalamu alaikum and join the jamara it's a valid view but the view that we prefer that is within the madahib is that you just go through the salat you don't make long rukur and sujood. You speed it up a little bit so you complete it and then you join the jama'ah. In fact, in the Hanafi school, they mentioned that if you come to the masjid and you for fajr and you haven't prayed the sunnahs of fajr and the jama'ah has already started, it's already started. If you are reasonably sure that you have time to pray the sunnahs, and then join the jama'ah without missing it you pray the sunnahs even though they've already started praying so that's not even a case of you being in the prayer when the iqamahs are called it's actually you praying sunnahs while the jama'ah is going on so i mean it's a different scenario but this is how we look at the issue so no one should be chastised or criticized for continuing their sunnah prayer after the iqamah has been called they should just speed it up a little bit uh, in, a, in a you know simple way and then alhamdulillah they can join the jama'ah inshallah all right so uh, that's pretty much it for tonight uh, next week 
we'll talk about the Witr prayer and then the prayer of the traveler, the Musafir. So all these questions about distance and time and how long and Jama' wa Qasar and joining and shortening and all this stuff. The, we'll also talk about the emphasized Sunnah prayers, the prostration of forgetfulness, the prostration of Tilawa, recitation, and Qada, making up missed prayers. Um, after that, we have a few miscellaneous issues uh, concerning prayer. And then we should be wrapping up this module, inshallah ta'ala. And uh, I think we're done. Any, any questions? Yes. Yeah, if yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, that's a, it's an interesting question because the, the way the way you put it is very interesting. Because it's not an obligation on you to take st- two steps back, right. but if they're pulling you, if they nudge you, and you do that, that's permissible. Should you preemptively do that if they haven't done it already? Uh, I would say no, because that is extra movement on your part that you don't have to do. If they nudge, now it's recommended you can go back. That movement is in the matter of perfecting the salat. It's not excess movement as such. Um, and I, you know, I would just leave them be and just give them advice. Sometimes people are shy or they just don't know. Yeah. Just uh, well, that's another issue. That's that's so two issues here. That's talking about praying just facing a copy of the Quran, the Mus'haf. It's not talking about praying whilst reading from the Mus'haf, because in the Hanafi school that's not permitted. Uh, in the other schools, it's allowed, uh, and there's some details about that. But Imam Abu Hanifa considered the act of reading itself while in salat reading from the mushaf to be extra action so this is why he didn't allow it but this example we mentioned is just praying towards or facing towards the mushaf well you know you could be in a masjid you could be in masjid al-haram and facing the shelf that has all the masahif and you're just praying absolutely fine yeah yes Yeah. Problem. Yep. I used to, um, I don't know if it was good or not. I used to sometimes have my phone on my foot to get their attention or snap to like let them know I didn't want them to do that. And I wouldn't break the prayer, but I, yeah. I don't know if that was okay. Uh, you, according to the Hanafi school, if you're doing that once or twice here and there, divided up within the salat, it's not three continuous movements. So your prayer would be valid. But uh, you know what, what we used to do? Is we would just utter the takbirat extra loud. So instead of the normal Allahu Akbar, it would be Allahu Akbar just loudly. 
communicating to these kids, I know what you're up to. Don't think we're not aware. And after Salah, I'm going to get you. Right? Yeah. This is, as I said, one of the areas in the Hanafi school that it's pretty strict. In the Hanafi school, they say that the du'as that you make in the prayer have to be du'as connected to matters of akhirah. What that means is, you're, when, you're, when you're making du'a for matters of akhirah, it could be matters of uh, entering Jannah, avoiding the hellfire, uh, you know, asking for forgiveness and pardon. Basically, the things that you would only ask Allah, right? If I, could you conceivably say to someone, give me a car? You could. You could go to a human being and say, give me a car. So if you could say it in a dua to Allah and also say it to a human being, that kind of dua wouldn't be allowed. Because you could go to a human being and say, give me a car. Or you could say, oh Allah, I ask you to give me a car. Like good health, for instance. Good health, uh, forgiveness, uh, children, right? The children, what I'm not too sure about. But you know, there's, there's the issue here is they say the du'as are matters of deen and akhirah and not matters of the world. And they distinguish between the kind of things that you would say outside of salat as a request to a human being as a possible request versus the things that you would only ask Allah conceivably so this is a stricter view uh, and this I mean we're teaching the Hanafi madhab here so this means that the du'as that you're making and all of your postures would be matters like Rabbana atina fid dunya hasana things like that you know asking for goodness in the akhirah uh, for forgiveness and for mercy and for Jannah, salvation from the hellfire, uh, forgiveness for your parents, forgiveness for other people. You know, these are matters that uh, are matters of akhirah. So it's a stricter view. The other madhahib would not be, are not as stringent. They would say, if you ask Allah Ta'ala for anything, even if it's of the of matters of the world, in salat, it's absolutely fine. If you said, oh Allah, I ask you to give me that car, it will be fine. Because it's, it's still dua. And in the Hanafi school, they don't say that's not dua. They just say the dua shouldn't be of things that could conceivably be asked of human beings on the human realm. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, so if it's, just, if it's uh, a movement here and a movement there and it's not three continuous movements. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if it's running down and it's disturbing your focus to address the issue and to blow the nose or to wipe the nose we could, it is conceivably for islah salat it's for rectifying the prayer. In that case you're good to go. If the person is spending all this time, you know, you know, switching out all the tissues and getting to the tissue, can, the tissue, whatever you call this, the little container and putting this one in the pocket and that one here, it becomes a whole big affair. No, that would be a little too much. But if it's just 
they have to because they're sick or they have allergies it's one or two movements and they put it away that wouldn't invalidate the prayer Yeah, that's that. That's probably three or four, right? One, two, three. Yeah, or if they're turning off the ringer, right? They're reaching into their hand, their pocket, and just fiddling around trying to find it and t to turn it off. Yeah. So it's good to be mindful of these things. Yeah. As you're more mindful of how many movements you're making, it actually, you're, you're observing something in the outward and it's eventually going to have an effect on the inward. The more conscious you are of those movements, the more focused you'll have in the salat over time. Because one hadith says, even if there's some weakness in the hadith, uh, the hadith says about a man who was playing with his beard in salat, the hadith says that the Prophet ﷺ said, that if the heart was khashir, the limbs would be khashir, they would be humble. But there's also this reciprocal relationship. If you humble the limbs, it will have an effect on humbling the heart and increasing the focus. Wallahu <laughs> rasulullah. لا أدري الحمد لله